Old Man Winter here. If I had it my way, it would stay winter all year long. Short days, wind chill, black ice and a good polar vortex. Oh, <laughs> heaven. Wait, is it getting warm in here? Your cold snap is over, Old Man Winter. Spring has arrived. Spring. Spring is here, which means it's the perfect time to get away in the Hyundai you've always wanted. Visit the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event, where you can get great deals on all of our award-winning Hyundai models, like the tech-filled Tucson and Kona, as well as the spacious Palisade. Enjoy wherever you go with the peace of mind that comes with America's best warranty and three years or 36,000 miles of complimentary maintenance. But hurry in. These deals won't last. Add more joy to your journey at the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event. Now get 0% APR or up to 1,500 bonus cash on the Hyundai Tucson. Now, during the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event. Offers end soon. Call 562-314-4603 for details. Hey, everyone. Welcome into the Pipeline Podcast. Tim McMaster here along with Jonathan Mayo and Jim Callis of MLBPipeline.com. And Jonathan and Jim's tours of the Grapefruit and Cactus Leagues roll on. Although Jim, back in the Windy City, done for the spring as far as traveling goes to, to teams. Jonathan, though, has moved on to Florida. And Jonathan Lakeland today? Yep. Uh, you know, you got to love the, the backfield once games have started on one field. Uh, I got to watch Tigers first rounder Bo Burrows uh, pitch an inning, and I just turned and I see the Tigers playing the Blue Jays, and uh, Rowdy Telez, the Blue Jays first base prospect, was just up. So that's the, the beauty of the backfields during spring training. If you see anything truly remarkable while we're doing the podcast, feel free to, to jump in, do a little play by play. I will shout it out with glee. <laughs> all right. Well, I know as you guys have made your trips and visited all the different teams, you've, you've done five questions with certain prospects along the way. So let's focus on those this week because I think those interviews tend to, they tend to be fun and, and you get some good stuff out of it. So, uh, Jonathan, you're in Lakeland, but I want to start with Jim. And, Jim, I know you visited the Giants, and we touched last week on Lucius Fox from the standpoint of his name and its connection to Batman, but I don't think we got into him any more than that, but he's one of the guys you got a chance to catch up with. What did you like most about Lucius Fox? Well, I'll say with Lucius and a number of guys, like I, I tried to, for the most part, focus on younger guys because with the exception of talking to Richie Martin in A's camp, I figured if these guys are in big league camp, uh, you know, our, our beat writers are going to be talking to him, so let's, let's shoot for some younger guys and I, I was just very impressed overall with, with almost all the guys I talked to. Many of them were, were seemed like they were 18 or 19 years old and, and were very comfortable and speaking and gave thoughtful answers, and Lucius was definitely one of them. Uh, you know, I did ask him the Batman question. You know, Lucius Fox is the guy who, I guess, kind of runs Bruce Wayne's financial affairs and invents gadgets for Batman, and he says he gets asked about that every day. Um, but he was named after his father, not Batman. He, he joked that maybe his grandmother liked Batman. But I, I was more interested just talking to him about the uh, decision to move back to the Bahamas, which made him a international free agent last year. And it was interesting. I I had always assumed that that was a move made to to gain free agency and you know reap the higher bonus than he would have gotten had he been tied to one team in the draft. And he said actually that that was not the case. That he. Um, it was financial issues. His family couldn't afford to send him to American Heritage High in Delray Beach, Florida, for another year, and that was really the main impetus. And he was actually very disappointed. Was worried, uh, you know, he had been geared up for the draft. Uh, you know, was worried how this might affect his career. And though, actually, looking back, he said going back there, and, and while I did continue to go to school, he, he started training a lot. 
um, you know, weightlifting, and he just felt like he got faster and quicker and stronger, and, and more guys were interested. And he, he said the whole draft process was kind of a whirlwind. You know, he or, or not his draft process, international process. He wanted to sign for six million dollars, which kind of blew him away. Still, he he actually said he remembered watching the draft in 2012 and watching Byron Buxton get drafted and, and, and following that, knew he'd signed for $6 million, never thought of having that kind of money. But he just um, was surprised, uh, you know, kind of where the bidding went. It came down to the Dodgers and Rangers and Giants, and he went with the Giants and, and said he really hasn't spent much of that money yet. Uh, he did buy his mom a BMW, which made him feel pretty good, but he was kind of waiting to, to make a big splurge uh, for himself and, and looking forward to getting out and playing. Did not uh, get a chance to make his pro debut last year. Had a minor shoulder issue, and he I, I didn't even get into this because we ran out of questions, but that it was you know, obviously frustrating not to get out to play, but he was thrilled when he finally got back on the field in the instructional league and really looking forward to, to getting out and showing people what he can do this year. So he bought his, his mom a BMW, not a Batmobile. No, he did not. He did not. <laughs> you know, if he was Lucius Fox, he probably could have like invented the Batmobile. That's right. He could have built it. All right, Jonathan, let's switch over to you. And, and um, we have some sound from, from some of the guys you talked to. I want to start uh, when you were with the Indians, uh, Justice Sheffield, because I know you really enjoyed your talk with him. Let's hear a little clip from Justice Sheffield when you got a chance to catch up with him with five questions. So when you look at yourself now, the spring training, compared to even last year, maybe right when you drafted, like, how far have you come as a as a pitcher? I mean, do you even recognize the the kid that was in high school? Uh, I mean, I, the kid's still there. I mean, he's always going to be there. I mean, I'm just out here uh, having fun, and, uh, enjoying the weather. I mean, I came from cold weather, so it's definitely nice out here, and uh, you know, just having fun out here. But um, I think mentally and physically, I've improved um, from last year, last spring training, and definitely since I came out of high school. And um, you know, I know I know a lot more about pitching. I know a lot more about my body and how my how, uh, how to go about things on the mound differently. And um, I just feel like just if I keep improving, then it'll just be all positivity from there. And, I mean, the failures, they're going to happen, but I feel like uh, my competitive drive and uh, my grit is uh, going to be able to overtake those failures and uh, attack those obstacles. So, I mean, the fastball slider combination, how, how important to you is the, is the development of that, of that third pitch, knowing, especially as you move up the ladder, uh, as good as your slider is, you know, if you're just a fastball slider mm-hmm. guy, you're going to end up in a bullpen yeah. someday. So, I mean, how how much do you realize that you need to continue to work on on those things as well? Oh, it's huge. It's uh, definitely huge to have that third pitch, and I want to be able to not even call it my third pitch. I want to be able to have have to make a decision on whether I want to throw my slider or my changeup. So, Jonathan, Justice Sheffield, talking to you a little bit. What stood out to you though in your your interview with him that that made you enjoy that time and, and talking to Justice? There were a couple of things, and I echo sort of what Jim had said in terms of these these young guys. You know, you, you never know. You know, with a guy who's you know out of high school, uh, he's had a full year now of pro ball, but you're not sure what you're going to get in terms of how he's going to handle himself in an interview. And he was phenomenal. I mean, mature beyond his years. Um, you know, really uh, taking seriously his craft. I think the, the two things that stood out: one baseball related, and one not. Uh, you know, the the baseball related part is the fact that he kind of started in pro ball like a lot of high school guys with had no routine whatsoever you know didn't know about throwing between starts uh you know he would basically sit in high school he would lace his cleats up and go out and play uh and it wasn't even told by like i don't know partway through his um partway through his first full season that he really started to understand like well boy i really need to do this otherwise i'm not going to make it 
through the year. He, was, he even said, it's like, I might, be, might have been done in July if I hadn't started really buying into it. And that al- allowed him to finish the season. He finished the season well. He threw a lot of innings for a high school kid in his first full year. Um, and then the other thing is the, um, you know, I love the whole myth that, uh, that sort of got started uh, with um, Gary Sheffield as his supposed uncle. Um, and the fact of the matter is uh, that's not true. Uh, and, and what happened is some reporter in a small town where he was playing a high school game had reported that uh, that it was true, and uh, that is where legends uh, are born. Um, and, uh, in fact, that, that reporter reported that uh, that Gary Sheffield was in the stands that day to watch them play. Uh, <laughs> and, and that was not true. Uh but it was good. I mean, we talked about that. We, you know, we talked about his, his brother is a chance to be a pretty good draft pick out of Vanderbilt. Um, you know, took the, took a different route, had Tommy John surgery and rehabbed and went to, to Vandy. Um, so uh, it was it was I was very impressed with how he, you know, talked about all things. You know, both fun and and serious. You never want to let the truth get in the way of a good story, right? Never. <laughs> Sheffield. Plus, Google. I mean, that thing. I. I'm not even a member of the family. I get asked that by fans still. It's just that's the power of Google. You get a yep. false report out there, and it just snowballs. And I think a lot of people have continued to even continue to write that because they Google it, see it, and, and assume it's true. And uh, those guys will probably, you know, both he and his brother will probably still be answering that question 10 years from now. I wonder if, if the elder Sheffield hears it all. Are these guys your nephews? <laughs> Who knows? It's like, Who? Who are these guys? <laughs> <laughs> All right, back to you, Jim. Uh, when you were at Royals camp, you got to catch up with Martin Gasparini, who's an interesting story because he was an international sign, right? But usually when we talk about international signings, it's guys from, you know, uh, the Dominican Republic, Puerto Rico, or not Puerto Rico, but the Dominican Republic or, or Cuba and different countries like that. Here's a young player out of Italy that the Royals spent a good bonus on. Yeah, he was. He, he's considered probably the best prospect to come out of Europe, uh, signed for $1.3 million in July 2013. He's from Alture, which is a, a town in, in northeastern Italy, kind of up near Venice. Um, and he is trying to become the, the second player born and raised in Italy to get to the major leagues after Alex Liddy. And, yeah, I talked to Martin for a, a long time. I, I probably could have done 10 questions, 15 questions. We even got to the point uh, – he was asking if I'd been to Italy, and uh, I was even telling him my two daughters are actually going over to Italy uh, tomorrow with their high school orchestra uh, for spring break, and, and and I love Italy anyway, so I was asking him a bunch of questions about Italy. We, But, you know, from a baseball standpoint, fascinating, too. And, and you know, here's a guy who, you know, Martin is not even uh, – he, he's 18. He's been over here for a couple years, and, you know, very fluent in English. You You would have thought he was an American high school kid if you didn't know any better. Um, you know, like, like all these guys, I guess what impressed me, like like we were talking earlier, and Jonathan saying too, it wasn't just that these guys were polished. Like you, you know, they, they took a second to think about the question and, and give you a thoughtful answer. And um, like I said, Marty, he, he, Gasparini was fascinating. He, uh, you know, said basically, you know, he played soccer, you know, which is obviously the the, the passion of Italy when it comes to sports. But uh, he, he more enjoyed playing out with friends. Didn't really like organized soccer that much, and his. His mother is uh, was raised in, in England, and so they had a lot of British and American movies, and he saw a lot of movies about baseball, was interested in, and his dad got him some equipment. He played in the backyard, and 
uh, you know, was on, you know, on their Little League team. They were, and I didn't have room to put this in the five questions. I, I think he told me, if I remember correctly, they were one win away from getting to Williamsport and lost in the championship game when he was playing Little League for the Italian national team. And then, uh, you know, after that, he wound up going to the Italian Baseball Academy. There's a player who's in the the Cubs system right now, a catcher named Alberto Minio, uh, who's not a, a top top prospect by any means, but anyway, he had, he had signed to play in the U.S. and you know Martin was interested in, in doing the same and saw that he played in, in the Italian Baseball Academy and he tried out for that and, and wound up going there full time, 300 miles away from his house. And there's a, a guy there, Bill Holmberg, kind of runs the program over there and had been a scout for the Cubs at one point and uh, you know really learned a lot, got better and. After he had a big 15-and-under uh, World Championship tournament uh, playing for the Italian national team in 2012, there was a lot of interest in him. And, you know, much like Lucius Fox, eh, he was kind of surprised. He, he said, you know, he would have signed for, you know, basically any opportunity to play, you know, let alone $1.3 million. And it was interesting. You know, he, too, has not really spent much of his money on anything for himself, but he, he paid off the family's mortgage, uh, you know, paid some money so they could, you know, remodel the house. Uh, bought some land for a farm for his family. Uh, family's very close. It was very interesting. He's got a, a sister who's going to Wellesley College in Massachusetts. His mom is over here uh, working towards a junior college degree uh, in agriculture. And his dad actually put his job on hold. The, the whole family moved over here to be with the, with the two kids. Um, so it was kind of interesting talking about that. And, you know, he he, he obviously, you know, knows about Alberto Minio and, and Alex Liddy and, and follows Max Kepler a little bit. And, you know, he, he he says those guys are kind of inspirations. You know, Kepler and Liddy have made it to the major leagues and, and shown that's possible. And you know, still a long way to go. He's only 18, but he's he's probably the outside of Raul Mondesi in that Royal system. He probably has the highest ceiling of anybody. I mean, it, 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 he's still raw, you know, which would be expected. But if it all comes together, I mean, this is a switch hitter with some pop and defensive tools. Very interesting guy. And and I, and I have to throw this in. This is not Martin Gasparini related, but Royals related. While I was on the backfield there, I was, I was watching some of the guys take BP. And, uh, man, Sully Matias, who was one of the top international prospects last year, and he signed for $2.25 million. He's barely 17. He's 6'3", I think listed around 200. He might be bigger than that. He put on an unbelievable show in batting practice. So I had to had to throw that in. The, the, the Royals international prospects, very impressive on the day I was in, in surprise to watch them. Nice, very good. And the Royals are able to, you know, spending some money there on the international market, and they've been able to spend a little more money at the major league level as far as free agents go as well. It's amazing what some success can do. Uh, I know you guys were all in Arizona first, but, Jonathan, you've moved on to Florida, and I know Houston was one of your stops early on on the Florida tour. Daz Cameron's who you caught up with. First-round pick last year, 2015, uh, 37th overall to Houston, and obviously he's – Mike Cameron's son, did that come up in your discussion with Daz? Wait, he's Mike Cameron's son? <laughs> As opposed to she the Sheffields. He I'm is kidding. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I had to throw in one question about that sort of jokingly. And I've, I've talked to Daz several times. I think, the, you know, over the last few years, the first time I saw him was actually the summer before his junior year when he did a lot of the summer showcase stuff as an underclassman. Uh, and so I've gotten to know him uh, quite a bit and, um, he's, you know, one of these guys that just loves to go out and play, uh, and obviously has the bloodlines and, um, you know, we're fond of saying, you know, he's, 
he can do a little bit of everything pretty well, uh, but not you know any one thing like super well. He, he's well-rounded, so he's one of those sort of not the highest ceilings, but a very high floor kind of guy. So, so we, yeah, we we uh, we we talked about it, Dad. Um, we, we talked about you know making his pro debut. He was in the Gulf Coast League first, where you play. You, know, you get up, you work out in the morning, you play in the afternoon. It's a thousand degrees, and and how excited he was to to get to the Appalachian League because you know there were fans and played under the lights, and he won a, a title. Um, and I think sort of the neatest thing that was going to be fun to watch is that he and Kyle Tucker are kind of paired together, uh, both taken in uh, you know the, the the first 40 picks of the draft. Uh, you know, Tucker taken up at the top of the first round, both high school outfielders. Uh, you know, both went from the GCL to the Appy League together. Uh, so there's, uh, you know, they're going to be not compared necessarily because they are different players, but I think they're going to be, you know, with the Astros, if it goes well, they'll, they're going to develop together uh, and move together. And, and so he, he talked about how much he appreciated being able to go through the process with someone. There's some friendly competition there, some one-upsmanship. If one of them gets a hit, the other one wants to you know, do better and things like that. And I think it's going to help push them, push them up the ladder. Very good. Uh, Jim, I know you were at the Reds and you talked to Rookie Davis. Now, Rookie Davis, part of the Roldis Chapman deal, so he went over from the Yankees to the Reds. Uh, one of the all-time name guys, I think, when you talk about Rookie Davis, but it goes deeper than that, right? I mean, this guy was meant to play baseball from an early age? He, he, he was, and I, I remember uh, the Under Armour game, I want to say it was probably 2000. Ten, he was in the Under Armour game, and I want to say Billy Ripken was in the booth, not in the dugout like he has been the last few years. But Billy was in the game doing color commentary, and I was getting interviewed during the game. And, and Rookie was he, was he was either hitting or pitching because he did both. And uh, and Billy was not only was enthralled by his name, but by the fact that he grew up on Baseball Lane. So you have Rookie Davis from Baseball Lane, and he said. Uh, I asked him about that, and I guess his dad's responsible for both of those, that uh, he's the third uh, generation, William Theron Davis III, and when he was born, his dad said, ah, we'll just call him Rookie. Um, and then he, he joked that, that that plays well now, we'll see how it works 10 or 15 years from now, and and that uh, they, they renamed the street, uh, I guess his his dad had kind of built a little baseball field near the street, and they wound up calling the street Baseball Lane, and he said when he filled out his, his information card in uh, – in spring training this year, his union card, Jay Bruce and Joey Votto, uh, found out about his address and were good-naturedly teasing him about him. I, I did not, you know, as fans of this podcast know, I, I, I've been dismayed that the rookie Davis only ranks 12th on our Reds list, but I did not uh, I did not ask him if he was angered that, that Jonathan Mayo, who does our Reds list, ranked him so lowly. But, uh, we avoided that question, but he was good to talk to, too. He, I asked him about the trade. He said he was actually in an auto shop. His parents had given him some accessories for his truck, and he was getting them installed when he had an unknown uh, number pop up on his cell, and it was Brian Cashman, and who, who actually made small talk with him for a couple minutes before telling him he was traded, which I thought was interesting. It, it wasn't like, hey, I have some news, kind of we were shooting the breeze with him, you know, which, I, you know, Rookie said you know, he, he did kind of have an idea something was up because there had been talk that he might have been traded at the trade deadline during the season, and, you know, it's not like Brian Cashman usually just kind of cold calls Rookie Davis to see what's going on after Christmas, but uh, he, he's actually really enthused. You know, he, he's bought totally into the Reds. He, he, he is correct. They do have a an improving farm system. They acquired a lot of talent last year in trades and the draft, and, 
As I mentioned in my Reds overview, the Reds have the largest draft pool this year. They have the second largest international pool. We, we, we could see more trades. I mean, they had Brandon Phillips turn down a couple of trades with his 10 and 5 rights in the offseason, and there was a medical issue involving another player that that scratched a potential Jay Bruce trade. So he, the, the system could be even stronger going forward, and, and he's very excited about the group of guys. There's actually – I think he's one of six Yankees that they have acquired uh, in the offseason. There were four guys in the role of Chapman trade. Jake Cave was a Rule 5 pick who's playing well in big league camp and may stick. And then they signed Angela Gums as a free agent. So he felt like he knew a lot of guys, and even the guys he didn't know um, he, he, he's bonded with. You know, he's probably going to be in rotation with Amir Garrett and Sal Romano, both of whom I saw pitch in inter-squad games that day, and they were good too. But he was – he he was very happy to be a Red um, and, and hopefully winning a World Series one day. I mean, he he was he was pretty jazzed up about that. And, and another thing I want to ask him about that was interesting is, and I'd actually talked to Alex Verdugo the day before and uh, the Dodgers, and both those guys are two-way prospects. And a lot of times, it seems the vast majority of two-way prospects coming out of high school or even college. And I think I guess I'm thinking of Brett Eibner with the Royals too. Seems like most of those guys, given their choice, would rather play every day than pitch every every five days or so. And they usually have enough leverage to get their way. And rookie kind of went the other way. I mean, a rookie's physically imposing guy, you know, big power hitter, you know, first base corner outfield guy. And there was some interest in, in him doing that also. But he's been solely a pitcher. So I asked him, you know, I said, hey, you know, a lot of these guys will, will leverage, you know, their ability to go to college, to get to do what they want. And he said, you know, he, he misses hitting. He, that's another reason he's happy back to the National League. He gets to hit now. But, you know, looking at it honestly, especially now that he's in pro ball and seeing what position players have to do to be physically able to play every day, he, he says he made the right decision. And that basically, you know, when the draft was going on, you know, and his draft process was a little different than most because I, I guess he had a dollar figure in mind, and, and he said the hardest thing he ever had to do was tell a bunch of teams no during the draft. He was a 14th-round pick, although he did sign for $550,000, but – you know, he said there were teams that, that that were looking at him as a hitter who who called, and, and there were teams who who kind of were on the fence, and other teams who saw him solely as a pitcher. But the, the money just wasn't what you know they were looking for, and he held firm. And then finally, around the twelfth round, the Yankees called him, and the area scouts said, "Look, we're going to take you with our next pick. Uh, you know, when, when it comes up, and we'll figure out the money later." But that you know, New York, he knew, looked at him strictly as a pitcher, and he, he didn't have a problem with that. And, and looking back, like you said. He, he said definitely, you know, made the right decision, and uh, he's, you know, probably on the verge of, of pitching in the big leagues in a year or so. Jonathan, before we get into Jacob Nottingham, who I know you ran into with the A's, any rebuttal on your ranking of rookie Davis? No comment. <laughs> All right, let's move on. Uh, you talked to Jacob Nottingham, uh, sixth-round pick by the Astros back in 2013, but he's really impressed and, and moved over to the Oakland Athletics system. And we have some, some of that interview to listen to before we get on with Jacob Nottingham. I was talking uh, to Brett a little bit about how the two of you, you're like following his path kind of thing. I mean, what, what, uh, how helpful has he been to you just in, in terms of advice, things like uh, he's been awesome. I mean, since day one uh, in spring training in Florida, kind of gave me a rundown about uh, Quad Cities and Lancaster. So he's like he always tells me like he's my dad, just because I'm trying to follow his footsteps every time and kind of putting up the same numbers um, in different uh, different areas. But um, he's been awesome. He's nothing. He's a great friend of mine, and obviously he's a good guy to be around. You mentioned the trade to to the A's. I mean, getting traded once is hard enough, but then you get traded twice within. I mean, was, was there certain, seven months? Yeah, I mean, was there a certain point time where you kind of said, 
Okay. All right. I got to wipe the slate clean. Like, how, how hard was it to sort of? I'm sure it was kind of tumultuous for you. Yeah, I mean, it was shocking. I mean, I was just starting to get adapted to the to the Oakland A's, uh, how they run things. And then all of a sudden, the time I got traded, I was like, oh, so soon. But, I mean, it, it was easy. I mean, there's a lot of great guys here, um, very friendly, very welcoming. So it was it was easier. Right, so the, I know the question that people always want to ask you is, you know, to catch or not to catch. Um, I mean, how much are you fueled by proving to people that you can stay behind or at least put in the work to try to prove to people I mean I'm trying every day I mean I feel like I'm getting a lot better um, since the start I mean this organization is a big catching organization and we work a lot every day um, a lot of great catchers in this organization so I mean being around them I feel like I'm getting better and learning a lot so um, I want to be behind the plate uh, trying to be like a Buster Posey I mean he's a great guy great leader and um, just an overall great player all right Jonathan good stuff there what stood out to you about Jacob Nottingham well, first of all, it just he he is uh, about as physically imposing as you're going to get, especially for a catcher. Uh, and then, you know, that's the one question is, uh, will he stay behind the plate? Because he is big. Uh, he's working hard. Uh, you know, and the other to to stay behind there, he wants to prove he can stay behind there. Even if he has to move, I think the bat's going to profile well. Gives the Brewers another uh, another bat to be excited about. I mean, he got traded twice within seven months. Um, you know, so a couple of things that stood out in our conversation. Uh, one is just how he handled all of that. He said the, the first trade was tough. You know, when it's mid-season, you got to go and just start playing for another team, and you didn't really know anybody there. And you know, then coming into spring training with the Brewers, it's like Houston Astros, Arizona division, um, just because of the amount of players that uh, that uh, came from from the Astros to to the Brewers. Carlos Gomez trade, uh, and now they got they got Nottingham as as well. Um, obviously in a separate deal, but, uh, you know, so he felt a lot more comfortable uh, and, and being able to go into spring training to, to meet all of them is a, is a lot easier. Um, uh, he's leaned heavily on Brett Phillips, uh, who is uh, sort of kind of I don't know, about a step ahead of him developmentally, but they've kind of followed in the same path. They were even taken in the same year, uh, not same round of the draft uh, in uh, one year after another by, by the Astros. Um, and, uh, you know, so he's been able to sort of follow in his footsteps uh, quite a bit uh, just in terms of knowing what to expect at each level. And uh, I think he's going to hit his way to the big leagues. It just remains to be seen whether or not he can do so as an offensive-minded catcher or eventually have to, to move to, to first base, uh, where, you know, I think the bat and, and, the, uh, and the power will profile just fine. Uh, you want to see him do it at the upper levels before you, you know, you're a true, true believer. But, uh he hit, and he hit for power. So I think there's every reason to believe that he can continue to do so as he moves up. I want to touch on one more player from each of you guys. So, Jim, I'll go back to you. And when you were with the Rangers, Dylan Tate was the fourth overall pick last year in the draft. And obviously he's a guy that they have high hopes for in Texas. But how about the interview with him? What did you like about Dylan Tate? Uh, a lot. You know, and it was nice. Like, the next day uh, I got to see him actually pitch an inning uh, over at the Dodgers camp. Uh, saw him throw 95 with his trademark good slider. But uh, it was just interesting. You know, this is a guy who, who's who's kind of you know come a long way in the last couple of years. He, he went from pitching three innings as a freshman at UCSB, so he uh, barely pitched. Did get to face Chris Bryant a couple times that year um, and, and got him out once and gave up a home run to him, like every other pitcher in the NCAA that year seemed to. Um, the next year he was the closer for UCSB and, and you know was kind of co-closer on Team USA, a load of Team USA staff. 
and all of a sudden he becomes a starter last year and winds up being the first college pitcher taken and goes number four in the draft. I, I, I was interested in talking to him about that journey and yeah, he kind of improved in steps. You know, after his freshman year, he went to the Urban Youth Academy, which is a, an MLB initiative that kind of promotes baseball and softball and education in, in inner cities. And he went there and kind of broke everything down and, and, you know, got some help from a lot of guys, including former big leaguer Daryl Jackson. Also said he kind of just did a lot of experimenting on his own to figure out what worked the best, uh, you know, and, and came back the next year and was very good for the Gauchos. And then with Team USA, he was on staff with six first-rounders, Tim, Tyler Jay, Carson Fulmer, who were the first uh, three pitchers drafted last year, you know, as well as James Caprillion, Walker Buehler, Kyle Funkhauser. And, and he and I asked him, you know, how much that helped him, and he said a lot, too. Um, you know, he, he kind of, uh, you know, kind of picked the brains of everybody. There were some couple other guys from the Big West Conference out there from Fullerton, Thomas Eshelman and, and Justin Garzen. He talked to them a lot about, you know, asked a lot of guys how they how they threw change-ups. The Fullerton guys both had good change-ups, and, and he felt like that helped improve his change-up. And he really was hoping to start his senior his junior year last spring at UCSB, but the coaching staff said, look, you know, I think you can help us best as a reliever. Kind of curious decision, um, and he was fine with that. And then uh, there's this story, and I asked him, you know, is this true? Because the way I heard it was that basically right before the season started, one of your starters got hurt, and that's how you got thrust in the rotation. And, you know, I was like, is that true, or is that kind of, you know, a little bit of a embellishment? He said, no, it, it was extremely true that they had a four-game series the first weekend, and their starter uh, really turned his ankle badly, uh, and so he wound up starting on Saturday, and he did and he did well, and he started the next Saturday and did well, and then they made him the Friday night starter, which is the number one starter in college, and he was lights out. And Jonathan will remember this too. I mean, early on, like this time last year, uh, you know, about a month into the college season, he was the buzz of the draft when we were doing our draft coverage. I mean, every scout was like, "Hey, you've seen you know Dylan Tate? He's been." Unbelievable, and uh, you know there was even talk he could go number one overall. But uh, you know, and you know, he said he didn't try to get too caught up in that, and uh, you know, just basically didn't read anything until their season was over. And you know, I you know, always ask these guys, "What are you working on?" And you know, he's fastball command and, and throwing off speed pitches for strikes more consistently. But you know, again, I mean, I interviewed ten guys in ten days, and uh, all ten guys, I, I. I and I'm not just saying this, but I enjoyed all ten interviews. I just thought the guys, I, you know, maybe it was part of you know because I wound up missing the rookie career development program uh, this year. I get talked to many guys, but it was just I, I had the best time talking to these guys. It was as Jonathan said. I mean, you know, backfields are fun, and you know, I, I got to see some games toward the end of my time out there, and uh, and that was fun. But I, I just really enjoyed talking to these guys, and I, I could have done ten or fifteen questions with most of these guys. They were such good interviews. Speaking of the Rookie Career Development Program, Jonathan, I know you got to talk to Albert Almora there, um, and then you get to talk to him at, at Cubs camp. Did anything – was he different, you know, in uniform, on the field, talking to you as opposed to in a setting like the RCDP? Uh, not really, just because, I mean, he's the kind of kid who's the same no matter what. I mean, that's what – it's one of his uh, better traits, I think, uh, in a lot of ways. And, uh, you know, the thing that stood out in big league camp is just how much more comfortable he that he felt you know he's been to big league camp before um he's not putting any pressure on himself nor are, are the cubs you know even though he saw you know some of these younger guys uh pass him by uh make it up to the big leagues ahead of him he, he's okay with that um you know, for him some of it's just been staying healthy um but he's always been a thoughtful guy uh he played played in the pan am games uh over the summer and that was his seventh time playing for team usa that's a record 
Uh, and he said, he's, as he said, he said, I, he's, he was very grateful the Cubs gave him the opportunity and said it was okay, but he can't say no. If USA Baseball asks, he wants to play. He's, you know, it's really important to him more more than anything else. So we talked about that. We talked about life stuff. He's expecting his first child, and I tried to prepare him as best I could for what lies ahead. But uh, as we all know, you don't know until you're there. Um, but it will put things in perspective for sure. Um, and, uh, you know, talked a little bit about uh, how much pride he takes in his defense. And uh, he is one of the better defensive center fielders out there. And uh, just to to prove the point that day uh, in, in the, he started in center and, you know, in the big league game and uh, Jesse Winker, the Reds prospect w- was at the plate and he just l- laced the ball to left center. And uh, Almora went back, back with his back to home plate, uh, all out dived like over his shoulder, made the catch. So I'm like, yep, that's about right. So you had Jesse Winker staying on a ball from the left side, going the other way and, and killing it. And, uh, and Almora just making a ridiculous highlight reel catch if there had been video of it that day. So it was kind of fitting way to, you know, that was my last stop in Arizona. It was a fitting way to close things out. Outstanding stuff. And I know, Jonathan, that you're going to be continuing on here in Florida. And, Jim, enjoy your time back in Chicago. The Cubs and White Sox will be back there before you know it. But that's going to do it for the Pipeline podcast for this week. Jonathan Mayo, Jim Callis, thanks so much.